This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at Austin. As Texas's leading research university, UT prepares students to do research that impacts Texas's economy, cultural life, and natural treasures. Find out more at impact.utexas.edu. And the Education Trust in Texas advocates for high-quality education for Black and Latino students and students from low-income backgrounds who have gone underserved for far too long. Learn more at edtrust.org slash Texas. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 23rd, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. This week, I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hi there. Politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Good afternoon. And health and human services reporter Karen Brooks-Harper. Hi there. Thanks, y'all, for joining us. Um, we're coming a little bit late this week because we wanted to talk about budget night, one of the landmark days of the legislative session. It was Thursday, yesterday, and it's the day in which the House passes its version of the budget and what is usually an all-day and all-night affair. This year's budget had over 200 amendments, I, I believe closer to 240 that were, that were pre-filed ahead of things. And uh, the reason we see so many amendments on these, these budget debates is because the budget covers so much of state policy and because you can file amendments on so many different issues, it gives lawmakers an opportunity to get an idea to the House floor that might otherwise, they might not otherwise be able to you know, if they can't get a bill through committee or, or through the calendars committee or something about that. So there's a lot of theatrics in the event, um, and we'll get into some of those. But first, I want to talk about one of the big ones, which was Medicaid expansion. Karen, we saw that, or we, we thought coming into this that we might see kind of a historic day in the House where, you know, more than a decade after Obamacare had passed, we would see a Republican-led chamber of the legislature endorse the idea of expanding Medicaid. That did not come to be uh, an amendment by a Democratic representative failed 68 to 80 that would have kind of opened the door to Medicaid expansion. I want to talk a little bit about why it failed, but first, can we step back and can you just tell us a little bit about why people thought that this might have actually had a chance this time around? Well, yeah, you, you had, <clears throat> and, and we should clarify probably that we all thought it had a chance in the House because mm -hmm. we don't have that level of in, uh, indication of that level of support in the Senate, right? But to your point, yeah, there's a bill that for the first time since 2013 has bipartisan authors on it. There's 76, which is the majority of votes needed in the House, including nine Republicans. And the bill, which is by Julie Johnson uh, of, of Carrollton, and then uh, Nathan Johnson uh, filed the original um, in the Senate, it, it does lay out a very specific Texas, uniquely Texas plan that's not just a cookie cutter traditional Medicaid expansion that's in the ACA that a lot of states did. They just checked the box, you know, sent it to, you know, sent it to the CMS and said, we'll do traditional Medicaid that way. This would have been a Texas plan. It had personal responsibility in it. It had incentives for work um, and continue earning and things that appeal to a lot of conservatives, which is the main reasons really where so many Republicans signed on to it. The amendment was not that. And that's, that's where the rub, a couple of the rubs came in. We thought uh, we might see by we, I mean the collective, anybody watching, 
thought it might have a shot because it was basically a referendum on expanding um, Medicaid, even though the amendment actually didn't do that. The amendment opened the door to it by saying, hey, Governor Abbott, Health and Human Services Commission of Texas, go to the federal government and propose a plan that covers some more of these you know, 5 million uninsured Texans, including presumably the ones that are working but can't afford Medicaid, which is what, um, and, and don't qualify for Medicaid because they, I mean, sorry, can't afford insurance, don't qualify for Medicaid. That's where they're falling in the gap. Presumably this Coleman amendment or the Garnet Coleman's amendment would have encouraged uh, coverage of them through some expansion of uninsured healthcare coverage. Didn't tie them to Medicaid expansion, but it did, it would have allowed them to ask for that if in some universe Abbott wanted to do that, which he hasn't expressed any interest in that so far. But it was a two-page amendment um, and um, all but one of the Republicans who had signed on to the bill did not vote for the amendment. And that is probably because it wasn't the same. It didn't have any guarantees of personal responsibility. There was some theory that it was a back end into Medicaid expansion, which conservatives still in general don't want unless there's these other stuff tied to it. So the failure of that amendment, I'd say, if you look back and kind of past a lot of the excitement that there was in the advocacy community, probably didn't have a, a big chance of, of passage. And another reason for that is they don't really like to expand, do big complex new programs in Texas as an amendment on the budget with no public hearing. And that was probably another reason that it didn't get the support that people thought it might. Right. And, and we always kind of knew this would probably, even if it had passed, it would have been in a lot of ways a symbolic vote, right? Because this then would have gone over to the Senate. And uh, we've, you know, I know you've asked, other people have asked Dan Patrick's opinion lately on Medicaid expansion. He has not really come out and said much during this session, but in past sessions, he's been pretty opposed to this idea. So there, there still would have been a very big hurdle to cross had this been approved by the House last night. Yeah, and if they had and if they had approved it by the House, right, that's right, it would have had to made it past the conference committee, which, um, you know, if, if, if Medicaid expansion or similar, something similar were imminent, you know, on the budget, you know, then I think the conference committees would probably have been chosen to, uh, to knock that off. Um, it probably would have been one of the criteria for choosing the members, that's how big that would have been. Sure. But, you know, it didn't go on, and <clears throat> it's anybody's... Um, guess as to whether, well, I don't know if it's anybody's guess. I'd say there's probably a slim chance that the bill at this point will be granted a hearing. The bill with the actual Live Well Texas plan that, that does expand our Medicaid eligibility will have any kind of a hearing. The chairman of that committee doesn't seem inclined to do that. And he's got some bills of his own that he thinks solve some of those problems. So it's probably, I don't want to declare it dead, but it's probably dead. I think most smart people would think that it is. I haven't had sure. anybody official tell me that. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't know that we need to. It's yeah. been an interesting discussion because of all the, the kind of increased support. I mean, the support is broadening through the conservative community. So this might not be the year, but you know, maybe in two years, maybe a campaign issue. Right. It does feel notable to see a majority of house members in the Texas house. You know, this is a state that has been yeah. about as opposed to this as you can get. Uh, you know, many states across the country have already approved some form of Medicaid expansion. Texas remains a holdout, but it, it does seem at least like we're seeing a little bit of a political shift here in terms of the support for that. Karen, really quickly, yeah. um, you know, this also came in the context of Texas having its 1115 waiver revoked. Can you explain briefly for us what that is and how th that plays into this? 
Yeah, that's a waiver that's that was first approved back in 2011, maybe 12. Sorry, I'm, I'm, my memory is going on which, but it was it was it was basically right after the ACA, uh, the Affordable Care Act had um, required uh, that the Texas, I mean, that states expand Medicaid and then the Supreme Court uh, knocked that down and said they didn't have to. So Texas applied for the waiver to pay for um, some Medicaid managed care programs and to reimburse hospitals um, for uncompensated care and to do some community projects, health-based community projects, um, uh, kind of one-offs um, in various communities. So. When that was extended under Trump, they have to ask for the, an extension every five years to continue to get that money, and that's billions of dollars for these programs. And then it was extended, and then um, and then it was taken away uh, last week, or at least sent back to Texas is sent back to the drawing board. They have to renegotiate it. They have to hold public hearings. They didn't do that. It doesn't have any real effect right now because that because the current one is still in effect until I mean to September 20, 2022 is when it expires. Meanwhile, the advocates are saying it doesn't replace Medicaid expansion. It, it, it pays for uncompensated care on the back end of uninsured people, which as we, we all know is the most, one of the most expensive ways to do it. You wait, they wait until they go to the emergency room, they're in more serious condition, it costs more, prices are higher instead of front end care uh, coverage, like your traditional healthcare coverage plan. So while it doesn't do anything right now, it is, it is kind of a political football at this point in terms of uh, whether or not it ups the pressure on Texas to find another way to uh, cover these uninsured people. So, um, but nobody's really done anything yet. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. All right, well, Medicaid expansion was the big headliner, but of course the purpose of the debate passing a $247 billion budget did happen last night. Cassie, you watched this debate for the all, all what, 12 hours of it uh, yesterday, pretty much. What stood out to you yesterday about what happened in the House? Yeah, so I think a, a couple things stood out to me. Um, you know, heading into it, I think, uh, particularly ahead of that Medicaid vote that uh, Karen was talking about, um, you know, I think that House members were trying to uh, remain relatively cool, uh, you know, not, not have any big blowups. Maybe some of the blowups or tense moments that we've seen on the chamber, um, on the floor of the chamber, um, you know, in past budget debates. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess I, I say all that to say, once the Medicaid vote did happen, um, you know, you were maybe waiting or, uh, you know, in, in our case, in the press's case, hoping for some sort of drama just to be able to write about it. And that never really happened last night. Uh, what you saw a lot of was members um, coming up to lay out their amendment and then they would, you know, move it to Article 11, which is uh, essentially the legislative graveyard for a bunch of these, uh, you know, or, or the wish list for, for members. It's not really included in the budget in any sort of uh, tangible way, um, or those amendments would just get withdrawn, uh, or another member would come up and kill it on a point of order. Um, of the amendments that did pass, uh, you know, we saw one that would ban school vouchers, another that would empty the governor's economic development fund and move that uh, roughly 100 million, those 100 million dollars uh, towards property tax relief, and then uh, another amendment uh, to. to some uh, spending in the attorney general's office. Um, another really uh, notable moment was when the chamber pretty late, and I say late relatively, uh, into the night, um, adopted unanimously an amendment by State Representative Jeannie Morrison, a Victoria Republican, to require a special legislative session to appropriate billions of dollars in funds that may come in after the legislature adjourns from its regular session in May. 
this has been uh, kind of like an ongoing question ever since uh, it, it seemed to just kind of gain a little bit more attention ever since the Senate passed its budget uh, a few weeks ago. And that to me kind of seemed like the House's, you know, the House is, is weighing in on what it wants to see, uh, the role that it wants the legislature to play when it comes to appropriating those dollars. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, aside from that, everything was uh, ran pretty smoothly, at least publicly on the floor. And I think I was walking out of the chamber and inside my car by 10.30 p.m. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. And now you're awake here, so that's good. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah you know, you, you talked about how budget night at times can be kind of a raucous affair. You, you can see kind of the conflicts among members or factions of the House that emerge. And really, it felt like to the extent that there was conflict, which there really wasn't, it was more kind of the House standing fairly united against, you know, other areas of state government. Where you mentioned the, the um, Ken Paxton, uh, you know, capping his spending on lawsuits, which is, you know, a, a somewhat of a rebuke against our troubled Republican state attorney general. Mm -hmm. The House approved an amendment to empty the Texas Enterprise Fund, which is a kind of an economic development deal closing fund that's controlled by the governor. We, we also, the school vouchers one you talked about uh, didn't specifically target anyone, but it's, it's well known in the Capitol that that's a big uh, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor priority. So it almost kind of seemed like the, um, the house kind of closing ranks within itself and, and taking some of those issues elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you can attribute that to a few different factors. Uh, you know, last week, the House had a pretty heated and, and uh, certainly long debate over the permitless carry legislation that I think we're going to talk about soon. So maybe folks were didn't really have the appetite uh, going into this budget debate to want to spend hours duking it out on the floor. Um, you know, a, a second reason is I think uh, the Speaker's office and appropriations uh, committee members, so Greg Bonin, Mary Gonzalez, uh, Gio, you know, uh, Giovanni Capriglione, uh, did a lot of behind the scenes work, uh, leading, uh, again, heading into debate, uh, hey, you know, this member from this party is going to pull down this amendment because we don't want to uh, be forced to take a vote on, you know, a, a, you know, uh, funding for a border wall or, you know, anything related to Confederate statues, just some of the more controversial amendments that we had seen uh, from, from that House members be filed, uh, pre-filed. And then I think, you know, the third reason is just, again, uh, you know, to the extent that the pandemic is still very much on members' minds, it's not really in anybody's best interest to be on the House floor, you know, from 10 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, debating Indeed. such, you know, a massive spending plan. Indeed. So where do we go here from the budget? I mean, one thing that we have, I think, learned is that things aren't looking quite as bad as they looked a year ago or, well, yeah, a year ago now that we're, you know, a year and more than a year into this pandemic. Um, we, there are some questions, as you mentioned, about federal, federal funding. So we, we go to conference committee. Where, where does the budget process go from here? Yeah, so the budget was passed on third reading, third reading last night, which means it now heads over to the Senate, uh, you know, just to hedge the 1% here. Uh, the, the Senate is all but certainly not mm -hmm. going to agree with the House version of the bill, and it's going to go to conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, that basically means that you're going to have House members, Senate members get behind closed doors and hash out a lot of these differences. Uh, a lot of the amendments that the House adopted last night, uh, 
you know, very uncertain whether they stay in the final uh, budget that gets sent back to both chambers for final approver, approval before it gets sent to the governor's desk. Um, so that's just going to be a process that, again, plays out pretty quietly behind, uh, again, the scenes here in the next uh, few weeks as we close out the legislative session. All right, very good. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on it. Let's take a break right now to hear from our sponsors. Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, meeting the healthcare needs of almost 3 million people and helping to lead collaborative research. Find out more at ttuhsc.edu slash support dash healthcare. And Houston GPS, helping Texas college students graduate with lower costs while supporting the state's 60 by 30 plan. Visit higheredtransfer.org slash performance to learn more. All right, so the other develop, big development that has happened since the last time we had this podcast was some progress or lack of progress, depending on your perspective, on the issue of permitless carry of handguns, or as the supporters of this bill call it, constitutional carry. Basically, the idea that people can carry handguns without any kind of concealed handgun license. The, uh, this measure passed the House earlier in the session, and we heard from Dan Patrick uh, soon after, where he basically came out and said he didn't think, at least at this time, that the Senate had the votes to pass it, but that he might work to see whether that changed. Patrick, you've been following this issue for us. Where do we stand right now on, on permitless carry? Yeah, things are, are actually uh, evolving uh, pretty quickly as of this moment on this issue. As you pointed out, the Lieutenant Governor came out on Monday of this week and said that he doesn't believe that this, there's votes for this in the Senate as of that moment, uh, but he said that he would be meeting with stakeholders, including law enforcement groups and the NRA, uh, to try to find what he called as a, a path to a majority uh, of senators who could support this. Um, and then the next day, you know, I was at a press conference uh, in Austin, unrelated press conference in Austin, and asked the governor about this, um, and he was completely evasive and didn't offer a personal position on uh, permitless carry didn't uh, opine on whether he would sign it, uh, uh, just said that he was focused on getting his emergency items passed at that moment. So uh, that was the state of play earlier this week. And then we saw some movement on it uh, today as we're recording this on Friday. Um, overnight, the Senate created a new committee. Um, it has uh, two Democrats, five Republicans, and a, a majority on the committee. Uh, the Republican members are all supportive of constitutional carry, uh, a permitless carry, I should say. And the House permitless carry bill was referred to this committee, and the chair of this committee uh, is now saying or indicating that there's going to be a hearing on it next week. And so it remains to be seen whether there is enough support in the Senate to bring this to the floor that would require 18 votes out of the 31 senators. Um, but the fact that this is going to be getting a committee hearing uh, obviously shows there's you know new signs of momentum for this in the Senate, um, and that it looks like leadership, uh, the lieutenant governor at least wants to show progress on this and get it to a, a place where it could make it to the floor if that um, support does emerge. And so it's a pretty quickly evolving situation. And this is all happening as you're seeing tremendous pressure uh, from the outside for the Senate to act and for the lieutenant governor to build support for this and for the governor potentially to, to get involved. You have the just one example of the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, Alan West, um, pretty sharply calling out the lieutenant governor and the governor on this and saying that the Senate needs to act on it. Um, and also saying, I should add that the Senate should just pass 
the House bill in its current form and, and basically saying they shouldn't water it down or they shouldn't tweak it in any way to bend to the will of the concerns of law enforcement. And so um, some of this pressure coming from the outside is, is pretty uh, is being pretty sharply worded. And the message, you know, at least from people like Alan West is, you know, no compromise at this point. Yeah, this does feel very much like a reversal of fortunes. We've seen this play out so many times in the other direction where the, the, the Senate passes out a bill that has strong support from the conservative grassroots and it goes over to a house where, you know, we're not sure whether it has the votes and we're not sure whether the person in charge, you know, really has their heart and the, the push to, to, um, to, to get it through. I mean, we've heard, as you've mentioned, Dan Patrick say that he... Does, isn't sure whether the votes are there. Has he necessarily come out and given his personal opinion on this? I mean, do we know how much he wants this bill to pass? He has not in recent days. Uh, you know, his statement on Monday did not offer a personal position. It just was all about uh, the state of play in the Senate, him saying that there still aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough votes, but that he would try to find a path forward. Um, so, We'll see. Um, in the past, ahead of previous sessions, you know, he has said that there's not enough support in the Senate and he's alluded to law enforcement concerns. Um, so we'll see where he's at on this, but neither he nor Abbott, uh, at least since the House passage of this bill, have really opined personally on the proposal. Sure. Yeah. I, it is interesting where we see two constituencies that are very important to Republicans right now a little bit in contrast here. You have the, the gun rights groups. Uh, we heard Abbott and, and many other people in the Republican Party talking at the early part of this session about protecting gun rights, particularly in a Biden administration, how you know one of the issues that's come up is making Texas a sanctuary state for gun laws. You know, we're kind of fighting Biden on efforts to, to increase gun control. And then on the other hand, you have supporting law enforcement, which in a large ways has come out against this bill, um, a lot of law enforcement groups are very concerned about the idea of not being able to know, you know, who might be carrying a gun, right? If you, if you pull someone over, if you flag them, you can, you, you will, it will show up on their computer that they have a, uh, a concealed handgun license. But if you don't need that license, then you don't know who has a gun or not. And, and so, of course, we've heard a ton about supporting law enforcement uh, from, from the, that same Republican leadership this session, and they're going to have to decide you know, one of those two factions is going to be unhappy about the way this plays out. So it'll be interesting to see which one. Cassie, I want to ask you, it, are there areas, I mean, are there things you're seeing where the big three, the, the governor, the lieutenant governor and the house speaker are united as pushing these priorities through? I mean, it feels like each faction, each group has their own kind of issues here but, you know, maybe the left hand and the right hand don't seem to be talking to each other that much this session. Oh, I'd have to think about that. Off the top of my head, I think, um, and Svitek, please back me up here. Tell me what you think. Off the top of my head, I think the broadest area of agreement that, you, that we've probably seen so far this session, and, you know, I'm uh, very generally here, just kind of... Uh, everybody agrees that there needs to be some sort of response to the winter storm from February. Um, some nuances there in terms of what uh, specifically should be done, right? We saw a little bit of that debate play out, uh, I believe in March with the whole repricing debate. Um, but since then that has seemed to cool off a bit. And, you know, we've seen the chambers, the two chambers pass um, a lot of legislation on this issue that uh, has a lot of overlap with one another. 
Um, of course, Abbott has made, um, you know, a couple of different things here, uh, his emergency items, right? And so that is one area to me that kind of just stands out um, in terms of where we've seen um, broad agreement. Um, Svitek, help me. This is broad agreement between the two chambers on Abbott priorities? Uh, or just, yeah, just any priorities? Um, Telehealth, maybe? Telehealth and broadband access seems to be pretty popular. Yeah, and you have a lot some of some way that's kind of, uh, you know, it seems to be a very nonpartisan issue, right? right that, yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, you've got House and House and Democrats and Republicans coming, and I haven't heard blowback from the Senate. I, I can't remember if they passed it or not, but I haven't heard that being a big stall out over there, the telehealth and broadband thing. Um, I think another area of agreement is just kind of, uh, and I'm only bringing this up because I just saw it pull up on my tweet deck, tweet deck here, uh, just a response to, uh, you know, talking about uh, law enforcement and homelessness, right? Uh, mm -hmm. HB 1925, a, a bill by Representative uh, Capriglione has just put, been put on the House's major state calendar for April 26th, and that would uh, it's, it's basically being considered the statewide homeless camping ban proposal. Obviously, the governor has weighed in on that. I believe he did so earlier this week when he maybe cast his ballot um, in Austin. The Senate has passed similar legislation out of committee. I know it's certainly a, a priority for the lieutenant governor. Um, that may be another area where, you know, there's some broad agreement just in terms of getting something to the finish line on that. Sure. All right. Well, you know, that finish line it gets closer and closer. We're under 40 days now. May 31st is the is signy die and a lot of work still left to be done in the legislature to, to accomplish these goals. Before we take off, I want to talk about one last thing. Look forward a little bit to 2022. There was a poll released uh, on Sunday that, that garnered a lot of attention. Um, about the governor's race in 2022. Uh, this is a Dallas Morning News University of Texas Tyler poll. And I'm going to just read you the question that was asked. It was, uh, Matthew McConaughey has been talked about as a potential candidate for governor of Texas. If he ran, would you be likely to support him more than Governor Abbott? The answer to that poll, 45% uh, said they would vote for McConaughey. 33% said they would vote for Abbott. And 22% would vote for someone else. So I guess, Patrick, my question here is, uh, how do you think uh, McConaughey is going to fit in with the big three here? It seems like uh, <laughs> a lot of people just penciling him in for the governor's mansion there. It's over. It's over. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously a really fun poll and, and pretty revealing uh, numbers, uh, but it's all premised on the fact that, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey can make it through a primary um, and we don't even know yet um, whether he would run in a Democratic primary, Republican primary, or whether he would run uh, as an independent or a third party. And so, um, you know, the, the cold water to dump on this is pretty obvious, which is that we got to figure out, uh, you know, obviously if he's going to run and if he does run, um, whether he could make it through a Republican primary or, or Democratic primary. And I think I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that same poll showed that, um, you know, he would have some problems if he were to, to run in either major party primary. Um, so that's the, that's the big question here. And, and that's the, um, you know, that's the, the huge caveat in these, uh, general election numbers, the hypothetical general election numbers that they pulled. 
That's right. That this poll got a ton of attention uh, while I was googling, googling it to pull it up for for this podcast. I I noticed that even uh, someone had asked uh, George W. Bush about it, and, you know, to weigh in <laughs> on the idea. And you know, he he didn't give much of an answer. Just kind of a uh, you know, it would be interesting to see him run. But yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that you look for in polls is you want it to be kind of a reflection of how the election could turn out. Uh, the way that question was posed, you know, where we don't know what party he would be in. Uh, whether he would be running as an independent or anything. Of course, the what we know will not be is a uh, unaffiliated Matthew McConaughey running against a Republican Greg Abbott. He will either be an independent, in which case there's probably a Democrat on the ballot too, or he would be a Democrat, which would mean the, I would say, a likely bet that the 30% of Republicans in that poll who said they would vote for Matthew McConaughey, that number would probably go down a little bit. So an interesting poll, but uh, let's, I guess, maybe uh, we'll shelve our uh, McConaughey uh, inauguration coverage plan for a little bit longer until, until we see how the rest of this plays out. So very good. Well, thank you to Patrick, Cassie, and Karen. Thank you for our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors. Uh, we will see you next week. You would never use Do I have to talk you